It's time for our regular segment with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. It's Legally Speaking right now on CFAX. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Hey, good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Some really interesting topics on the agenda. I'm looking here. Video of an assault in jail in terms of evidence on a sentence appeal. How does it all fit together? Yeah, there, there are several, I think, interesting issues all bound up in that uh, what you've just described. And this is a decision, it's a, de- a decision of the B.C. Court of Appeal, uh, and it deals with a sentence appeal uh, from a man who was sentenced to nine years in prison uh, following a conviction for various serious things, including aggravated assault and kidnapping and forcible confinement. Um, and so he received a sentence of nine years that he's uh, appealing. Uh, and the uh, sentence appeal is scheduled to be heard uh, next month in December. Uh, and the particular decision that just came out dealt with uh, an application for uh, a copy of a video of the man being uh, beaten in prison by some other inmates uh, and apparently losing sight in one eye as a result of that uh, assault that he suffered. Wow. Uh, and... The issues, there are several issues I think people would be interested to know about. Uh, First of all, there's a uh, concept uh, that can be taken into account on sentencing that is broadly referred to as the collateral consequences uh, of uh, somebody committing an offense, right? Um, And the idea there would be, for example, let's say somebody commits an offense and they get beaten and lose, uh, become blind, or at least blind in one eye, uh, in custody, that would be a consideration uh, for a judge when determining uh, what the appropriate sentence would be, right? Uh, other sort of common collateral consequences might include things like, uh, you know, a person could be fired from their job as a result of being charged or lose their home, things like that uh, would all, as, as one would hope and expect, would at least be thought about uh, by a judge when deciding uh, what the appropriate uh, sentence was for somebody. Uh, and so that's why the uh, the uh, attack in prison uh, could be relevant on the sentence appeal, right? Because that could be a collateral consequence uh, that has uh, happened uh, to the person. Fascinating. Uh, the, the next uh, concept, which is an important one or interesting one, is the idea of what's referred to as a third-party record. Uh, and the way that works is that in a, a criminal case, an accused person is entitled to what's referred to as disclosure material, which is to say uh, the uh, Crown, when they're prosecuting somebody, is required to give to the person or their lawyer uh, a copy of all of the evidence that the police have collected, right? Uh, which sort of makes sense from a fairness perspective. It, it actually wasn't always that way. That only became a legal requirement as a result of the Charter. Hmm. Uh, but there's an obligation now that uh, Crown provide all of the evidence, evidence both that might uh, show the person's guilty, but also evidence that might show the person's not guilty. Hmm. Um, interestingly, that used to be sort of variable how that would uh, occur, um, but uh, now that's a clear requirement. But that requirement only applies to evidence that the police or Crown Council have, right? It doesn't oblige the police to go out and, like, collect other evidence, right, even though it might exist, right? Like, let's say there was a uh, an assault and a video of taping, video uh, recording of it. The police aren't obliged to go get the video recording. They might just say, sorry, we're too busy, we're, we're not, 
Hmm. And then an accused person wouldn't have any right to it because the police don't have it, right? You only have a right to what they actually have. Interesting. Uh, and sometimes there can be some ambiguity, like, well, hold on. You know, in this case, what was being asked for was a video recording. It was like a three or four minute from various different angles of the man being beaten in prison. Uh, no correctional staff witnessed the beating, but they had described it based on the video recording. So they knew that there was video recordings of it, uh, but the man and his lawyer didn't have the video recordings. And the reason that can be sort of uh, a gray zone, right, is it's a matter of, well, does the Crown have that? Is it something they have that they just need to turn over because it's held by the provincial correctional people, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, in some broad sense, you might say, well, they've got it. You give it to me. You can't just keep that. Hmm. Uh, but here there was an agreement that that was a third-party record. And that would be, for example, you know, let's say there is a, uh, a crime committed. Uh, and let's say it's not a government thing. Let's say it's just somebody uh, has a videotape of it on their security system from their home, right? And let's say an accused person wants that recording because they say, hey, this will show that I was defending myself or that it wasn't me or, or whatever, right? And in that case, there has to be an application made to get something that a third party has because the police don't have it. The Crown doesn't have it. It's, you know, Mrs. Smith <laughs> who's got the video recording, right? And so here there was an agreement that this was a third party record, even though it was something in possession of the correctional facility. Uh, and so then the remaining part of the uh, test to start the process of getting a third-party record um, is that the judge needs to be persuaded the third-party record is likely relevant, right? Because you don't want sort of fishing expeditions saying, look, I just want everyone's doorbell camera for the whole neighborhood or something, right? You have to show some basis that it would be likely relevant before a judge is going to order the third party to turn it over so that a judge can assess whether it's in fact relevant. And then the final consideration that applied here is was a concern about the privacy interests of the of the people on the video. <laughs> so for example, uh the inmates that uh, may have committed this assault in custody. Hmm. Uh and the crown had expressed a concern about, you know, they wouldn't want to have them identified, maybe there could be some retribution in jail, that kind of thing. Hmm. Um and so the uh, judge or the uh, judge for the Court of Appeal here ordered that the correctional facility produce two copies of it, one, uh, an unredacted copy for the judges to look at, and a second copy that would have the identity of the presumably people that beat this man pixelated um, to protect their privacy. Huh. Uh, and so on that basis, uh, the uh, Court of Appeal judge has ordered that uh, at least for that first stage, likely relevance, that threshold has been met because it's clear there is a video of this because the staff looked at it and described it. And uh, it could have relevance because uh, if the man was assaulted in custody and lost vision in one eye, that would be a collateral consequence that the judges might want to take into account or might choose to take into account when determining whether the nine-year jail sentence was unfit or not. And so on that basis, uh, the video will be uh, ordered to be provided uh, to the court, and then a judge can review it, and then arguments made about uh, providing it to the uh, the man or, or his, uh, realistically, his uh, lawyer. Um, so those are the concepts. They include collateral consequences, um, third-party uh, records, uh, and uh, how that might fit into a, uh, into a sentence appeal. The other thing I think I should probably mention mm -hmm. 
is that some people may be wondering how is it that somebody could be assaulted in a jail and have nobody there to witness it, right? No uh-huh. staff members. Yeah. Uh, jails are dangerous places. Uh, we had a case a number of years ago, our firm did, which involved a man who uh, in a preemptive way uh, hit another inmate with a uh, weight uh, uh device uh, in the uh, gym and and the and the evidence from the correctional staff was that they don't enter the gym it's too dangerous and they have no way to protect an inmate um, if uh, they are going to be potentially the subject of a uh, of an assault wow Uh, and all of that played into uh, whether doing something proactively might be uh, justified uh, in prison uh, because the staff uh, don't have uh, any realistic way to stop uh, an assault from occurring if other people are uh, inclined to perpetrate one. Wow! You know, sort of at uh, VIRCC, the Wilkinson Road Jail. You know, you have a circumstance where you could have twenty, you have twenty plus inmates in a unit, and you have one unarmed uh, jail guard sitting there, right? Yeah. And so, if somebody's inclined to do something, the, there is no uh, realistic way that that uh, single uh, unarmed person is going to be in any position to prevent it. And there are some places in a jail, uh, including at that time at Wilkins Road Jail, the weight room, where the staff wouldn't even enter uh, out of uh, concern for their physical safety. Wow. Uh, and so they have video recordings of things, but that's the uh, that's the actual reality in jail. It is a very dangerous uh, uh, place, and I must say as well for people that work there, a very dangerous place for people to uh, work. Right? They they have the staff there intentionally unarmed. So that they couldn't have their, you know, if they had a sidearm or something, they would be in jeopardy of having that taken from them. Hmm. Uh, and you can imagine what that would produce. And so you have uh, staff often alone uh, guarding a much greater number of people in an unarmed way. And what they have is a little device so that if they got hit and knocked to the ground, it's supposed to set off an alarm or they could push a button like a panic button. Hmm. Uh, but otherwise, uh, they're sitting in there. So uh, consider that. Uh, in terms of uh, challenging uh, jobs, uh, those people, uh, I think, work very hard in very difficult uh, circumstances with a whole bunch of people that are very unhappy to be there. Uh, and so uh, not easy and, and not safe for uh, uh, anyone involved. Uh, and so that's uh, how that may play out in this particular sentence appeal. Well, we can see uh, what happens next month, uh, but at least the uh, judges will be able to see uh, the uh, attack on this man and take that into account when determining whether the nine-year sentence was appropriate. All right. We're going to take a quick break here at CFAX 1070. Michael Mulgan with Legally Speaking will continue right after this. Legally Speaking continues on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, before the break, we were discussing how the exercise room in a prison can be among the most dangerous places, in some cases so dangerous that prison staff and guards will not venture in there, nor can they guarantee the safety of inmates who choose to go into those spaces. This, of course, gives rise to an interesting question. What punishment is sufficient to deter poor behavior for someone who is already in prison and perhaps has the prospect of staying there a long time already? How does that work? Uh, well, the, uh, there's a disciplinary process in the prison, and how that works is the subject of the next uh, case. Uh, and the essentially, uh, if somebody, an inmate, is alleged to have done something contrary to the rules in the jail, mm-hmm. uh, they have sort of a mini hearing to determine whether the person should be punished. And the punishment uh, would uh, can include putting the person into solitary confinement 
and sometimes they call it the hole. Um, uh, and that can, of course, be have very serious long-term consequences when you deprive somebody of sort of human contact uh, for an extended uh, period of time. Uh, and uh, there is a case now dealing with the uh, issue uh, of whether uh, it's appropriate to have that decision made, whether the per- whether an inmate can be disciplined, including putting them in solitary confinement, on a standard of whether they probably did something wrong, because hmm. uh, that's what the provincial—that's how the system currently works. Um, there, uh, the standard, of course, uh, in a criminal case is whether. Uh, the Crown has proven that somebody did something beyond a reasonable doubt. It's quite a high threshold before we put people in prison or convict them of crimes. Yes. Uh, and that lower standard of probably, a balance of probabilities, is the standard that would apply if you were, for example, suing somebody for money, right? Do they probably owe you money? We apply a lower threshold to that. But the uh, provincial jails use that same lower standard of probably, when deciding whether to punish an inmate. Uh, And so there's a challenge going on about whether that's constitutionally permissible. And there are two grounds, or there are two constitutional uh, grounds that that are referred to in that case. Uh, One is that there's a specific provision under Section 11D of the Charter, which sets out various uh, rights in criminal and penal matters, uh, which provides that uh, to be a person has a constitutional right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty uh, according to law in a fair and public hearing by an independent and impartial tribunal, uh, which would seem to answer it. Uh, but uh, the uh, as everything uh, in this world, there's subtlety, and so there's a, a some doubt based on previous cases about whether. Uh, a prison disciplinary hearing uh, is the kind of thing which would uh, uh, be a the kind of thing covered by 11D. Hmm. And the province was arguing that this claim shouldn't be allowed to proceed at all because it's doomed to fail because this isn't uh, uh, the sort of thing that that section is intended to imply to. Uh, however, uh, the inmate and the group bringing the uh, challenge uh, here is relying not only on that uh, section, uh, but the broader principles uh, in terms of fundamental justice that are set out in Section 7 of the Charter, which provides that everyone has the right to life, liberty, and the security of person, and the right not to be deprived thereof, except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. And so the uh, alternative argument being made is that uh, that um, kind of punishment, based on a standard of probably, uh, doesn't meet that constitutional Um, threshold either. Uh, And one of the things which uh, is being relied upon in this case and is being brought by uh, the West Coast Prison Justice Society and a particular inmate um, is that all of this, that system, which is to say punishing people on a standard of they probably did something, even if maybe they didn't, um, applies not only to people who are serving a sentence, but also applies to inmates who are there on remand who are were denied bail and who are presumed innocent uh, of committing any crime. And so you can have a person who's presumed to be innocent waiting in jail for their trial uh, and on a standard of probably they did something, but maybe they didn't, uh, they could be put into solitary confinement uh, as a punishment. Uh, and so that's uh, a, a core argument that's being made. Uh, And so on this recent application, it was an application by the province to try to strike out this claim saying this is hopeless, it can never succeed, Uh, that failed. Uh, 
Um, and the uh, judge hearing that application uh, found that, you know, while the, uh, some of the arguments being made here were novel, right, they haven't previously been decided, um, he was, uh, he, uh, was not uh, uh, persuaded uh, that it was doomed to fail. Uh, and so we don't have a final answer on it, but we uh, do have an answer that this is at least arguable, whether uh, it's constitutionally permissible uh, to uh, punish somebody on a standard of probably. Um, and uh, I suppose the other thing I should say is that uh, when you're having a legal argument about constitutionality, that's not an argument about whether something is good, right, reasonable, or fair, right? Mm-hmm. It's an argument about whether it's legally allowed. Hmm. Uh, and so I suppose the other thing I would say about all of this is that perhaps the province should give some consideration quite apart from the constitutional test, which is, is it possible? Can you do this yeah. as to whether it's fair, right? Hmm. Should you punish somebody potentially in a very severe way uh, if you're only kind of think they probably did something, even though you agree that they might not have, right? Is that appropriate? Uh, which really should be the test in, in life, right? Not, can we do this? The test should be, should we do this, right? You know, the analogy I've used before is setting the, the, and this is sort of a thing that's from time to time caused me great consternation when you hear political debates about criminal justice matters, where often the language turns into, is this constitutionally permissible rather than is this a good idea or wise or fair? Interesting. I have to say, you know, setting something, doing something because you can legally do it. Yeah, the analogy I've used is it's like setting the recommended dose for medication by figuring out what dose would kill the patient and then recommending you take just a little less than that. That shouldn't be how you approach things. You should always approach it from the point of view of what's the appropriate thing, not what can we get away with. Hmm. Um, And so that's the issue, and we'll wait and see uh, what comes of it. But uh, the province didn't at least succeed in getting it struck out as having no hope of success. All right, we have just over four minutes remaining and a court of appeal overturning an interlocutory injunction. A lot of complicated stuff there, but I see an online respondent about a pet food store. What is this? <laughs> that, that is a mouthful. Uh, the background of this is that uh, a woman who was employed at a pet food store over on the lower mainland for about a month uh, quit her job. And then sometime, apparently on good terms, but then sometime later started posting things online claiming that the pet shop was, I think the language was things like disgusting, uh, and then uh, alleging that they had had a power outage and that uh, some of the pet food had thawed and been refrozen again. She was sort of seeing disparaging things about the business, basically, and more than that. Uh, And so... Um, she was. She got a cease and desist order from the business, or the lawyer for the business, saying stop doing that. It's defamatory. To which she continued doing it, and then got sued uh, for defamation. Hmm. Uh, and the next step, the, and the woman kept posting things online, and so the business went to court and sought an injunction uh, to have her stop doing that. Um, and the judge that originally heard it applied a test which is well known from a case called RJR McDonald. It's a case that deals with when can you generally get an injunction before you've had a trial to make one side or the other stop doing something, right? And generally, there's a three-part test. Is there a serious issue to be tried? Will there be irreparable harm uh, if there isn't an order to stop doing it right away? And then a balance of convenience, sort of, you know, who would be more put out by in order to stop doing something? Hmm. And on that basis, 
the judge who originally heard the application ordered this woman to stop posting anything about this pet food store. Hmm. That got appealed. And the Court of Appeal clarified that that general test, which is, applies in almost every other circumstance for uh, an in-term injunction, like an order to stop doing things before we have the trial, is not the test in a case for defamation. Huh. Uh, and the reason for that is that there's a balancing, right? There is this balancing about not wanting harm and the balance of convenience, but there's also a high, a high importance we place on freedom of speech. Yes. And so you don't want to have a circumstance where somebody who's claiming, hey, that's defamatory, can get an order that muzzles the other person from saying anything at all. Uh, and so there's a higher threshold the court has now clarified when you are uh, applying for an injunction in a defamation case. Hmm. Uh, and the test starts with the, uh, the person asking for the injunction has to establish that the things the person was saying are manifestly defamatory, which means that a jury not finding them to be defamatory would be perverse, right? So it has to be very clearly defamatory, hmm. um, not just, well, arguably so. Yes. And on that part of the test, the Court of Appeal uh, on this uh, appeal of the interim injunction said they couldn't find beyond doubt that, for example, no meat thawed during a power outage and was refrozen. Maybe that's so, maybe it's not. <laughs> but it's not so clear uh, that it would be perverse for somebody to say, yeah, this woman was saying the truth, which yeah. you're permitted to do, right? Yeah. Uh, right? Truth, justification, and fair comment are all defenses to uh, claims for defamation. Uh, and so the Court of Appeal found the uh, judge who heard the original application applied what is a common standard and would apply in virtually every other type of claim, but not in defamation claims. Hmm. And so there's this higher threshold, uh, which comes from the fact that uh, we don't want a circumstance where you can have somebody effectively muzzled, <laughs> uh, no pun intended in the pet food case, um, uh, uh, for statements which may or may not at the end of the day be defamatory, because they may or may not be true, for yeah. example. Uh, and so the Court of Appeals overturned that, uh, and uh, the pet food store does not get uh, their order, and the case will continue to trial. The thing that might deter the woman from continuing to say things that are, if they are false, um, is that, of course, there's already a defamation claim going, and she could wind up with a big bill if she was unsuccessful. But the pet food store won't be able to get the original order, which was stopping her from saying anything at all online, which, of course, is also very broad. She couldn't even say good things about the pet food store. Yeah. So no muzzling hmm. in the pet food case, and we'll wait and see the outcome. In the second half of our second hour every Thursday on CFAX, it's Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan for Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, pleasure as always. Until next week. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye now.